Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3 this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 3. And mark that passage of Scripture, please, and turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. If you don't happen to have a copy of the Scriptures right with you, pause this video, will you please? And take an opportunity to go get a copy of God's Word so that you can follow along. 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 5. We are working our way through the pastoral epistles, and Paul is helping us understand something about the function of the church, how we are to share together in ministry, what our focus is to be as we recognize the need for, for sound doctrine, how we are to minister to those around us in, in prayer and recognizing the power that we can have as we bring our requests to presence of our God. As we move into chapter 3, we discover that Paul is giving to us some um, qualifications for, for church leadership. Now, perhaps you've heard me say, I, I wish God had included in his word a church constitution. Well, he didn't. But Paul in the pastoral epistles helps Timothy and and Titus recognize what they need to be able to minister in a local church setting and how they can be successful as they put into place the principles that Paul is, is writing to them. Some years ago, we changed our church logo. We, we refreshed it. And I remember very clearly that someone asked me, Pastor, as I look at that logo, what's missing? I looked at it, and I thought, well, there's a couple of things that weren't in the old one. But I knew what this individual was, was really asking. My first thought was to say, well, there's no word church in the logo. And yet we are a congregation of believers. We are an assembly. We are the body of Christ that is called the church. But what this individual was getting at was the word Baptist is not in our refreshed logo now we've always talked about growing a great family here at calvary and we've always talked that it is because of calvary that we are this family as we recognize god's love for us as his son died for us and allowed us to have a personal relationship with him through the wonder of god's gift to us in his son and the sacrifice that christ made as he went to that cross if you've ever been to CBC 101, and if you want a refresher course about what we believe, the first week we talk about what is a Baptist. And we use a little acrostic that probably is not a surprise to you. B-A-P-T-I-S-T. And let me just share with you some distinctives that we as Baptists believe. We believe that the Bible is our sole authority. It is our only rule for faith and practice, and it is from the Scripture that we identify how we should live before our God. We believe in the autonomy of the local church. That means that we are an independent body of believers that function with this, within this community, recognizing that we are to fulfill what we believe God has called us to do here. We believe in the priesthood of the believer. 
And that means that I can go before God, I can present my request before God, I can recognize that I as an individual believer have access to God. We believe in two ordinances. We practice baptism and communion. Baptism identifies us with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Communion reminds us of the given body and shed blood of the Lord Jesus. We believe in independent soul liberty. Each one of us, one day, will have to stand before God and give an account. And that account will be based on our relationship with God and how we fulfilled God's will from our lives, how we lived out this book for the honor and glory of, of God. We believe in separation of church and state. I had an interesting phone call on Thursday as I called one of my pastor friends, and he said, well, Tom, how, how are you guys handling the coronavirus? I guess this phone call was Friday. And I said, well, perhaps you've not heard that our state governor has issued an executive order that congregations that bodies of 250 or more should not be meeting in public places together. And so we have decided that because of that order that we are going to meet outside this place individually and try to worship together in different ways. He said, well, Tom, shouldn't that be separation of church and state? I said, well, you could call it that. But the scripture tells us that we are to submit to the authorities that are over us. And yet, in order to complete what God wants to do in our lives, we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Now, I know this is different this morning. But I trust wherever you are, you are remembering that you are a part of a greater body. And we are doing our best to assemble together, recognizing the wonder of God's working through Calvary Baptist Church. We also believe in two officers. Now, historically, those officers have been pastors and, and deacons. Now, in the scriptures, there are three words that describe the offer of the past, the office of the pastor. There is shepherd, pastor, there is elder, and there is bishop. Now, there are some congregations that would identify elders as being the leadership of the church and, and deacons taking care of the people in the church and, and meeting their needs. Elders being those who would identify the spiritual issues and the deacons identifying the physical issues as well. That there are lay elders and paid elders. Well, here at Calvary, we are blessed to have a couple of lay elders. Former Pastor Brian Spencer certainly is an elder and part of our leadership team. Roger Steele is another member of our church family, and he too would qualify as a lay elder, and perhaps there are others. But historically, Baptists have believed in two offices, pastor and deacon. Now, there are two places in the Scripture that identify these three words to the same office. One is found in the passage before you, 1 Peter chapter 5, and the other is found over in Acts chapter 20. 
In Acts chapter 20, Paul has identified the elders who serve at Ephesus. Now, we don't know much about the church at Ephesus. We don't know how large it was. We don't know what the community of believers were. We do not know what the ministries were. We only know in Acts chapter 20 that Paul calls the elders together of that ministry, and he helps them recognize that they have some responsibilities that they are to fulfill. He recaps his ministry in Acts chapter 2. He tells the elders not to shrink from that which God has called them to do. And then he says, take care how you handle the ministry. Here in 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter uses these three titles to identify the ministry of shepherding the flock. Follow along your copy of scriptures as I very, very quickly read the first four verses. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the suffering of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compassion, com not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now, Paul identifies three different titles. Verse 1, he identifies the elders. Verse 2, he identifies shepherds or pastors. And also in verse 2, you discover the word oversight in the English Standard Version. That's the word bishop. And so there are three Greek words that I want to very quickly help you understand so that you can recognize what these three words mean. Overseer, bishop. Episcopal, it has the idea of spiritual administration, putting programs together so that a complete balanced ministry might be had for the flock of God. Elder, presbyteros, one who is spiritually mature and, and therefore qualified to teach and preach and live out the word as an example before the flock. And then poiomeno, shepherd, pastor, one who leads and feeds, one who cares and connects, one who prays for and provides for the flock. So as you see these three identities of the one role that we would call pastor, I think it helps us understand what the function of a pastor is, and how he is to, to live out that responsibility in the lives of his people. Now turn back to 1 Timothy chapter 3, will you please? 1 Timothy chapter 3. In chapter 3, Paul helps us understand the qualifications for these two offices. In verse 1, he says, this is a trustworthy saying, if anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, a bishop, a pastor, he desires a noble task. Down in verse 8 it says, deacons likewise. 
So Paul is identifying these two offices and giving to us an understanding of what it takes to serve in these capacities. I think it's very important that as we share together, we recognize that God gives to us the highest standard for church leadership. These are the only two places, only two offices, where we have specific qualifications for service. And over the next three weeks, we're going to examine these offices and these qualifications, and I trust it will be a blessing. So let's begin. 1 Timothy chapter 3, allow me to read the first seven verses, and we are going to just deal with verse 1 and a little bit of verse 2 this morning. This is a trustworthy saying. If anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, bishop, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer, a bishop, must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, apt to teach. Not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? He must not be a recent convert, or he may be puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace and into the snare of the devil. Verse 1 says, If anyone aspires to the office of a deacon, he desires a, a noble cause. Wanting to be a pastor, wanting to be a bishop is a good calling. If you have a King James translation of the scripture, it says, if any man wants to be a bishop, it's a good work. The idea is that it's a, it's a beautiful thing. Tuesday, I had a meeting in Mount Pleasant, Michigan, and as I was driving home, I, I got a call from one of our deacons who had the responsibility of doing devotions at our deacons meeting scheduled for that evening. He said, Pastor, I'm sorry, I'm not going to be there. Work has called me in, and, and I know I have devotions, but I just wanted to let you know. I hung up with him and immediately called Preston Hawksworth, our church intern. It's always good to have an intern because you can always call on him to do what needs to be done at the last moment. And I said to Preston, Preston, would you be willing tonight to share with our men some of the things that you have discovered during your time with us? And as a good intern does, he said, sure. And so Tuesday evening we gathered together and we start with prayer and then we have a time of looking in the Word. And Tuesday, uh, Preston said, these are two lessons that I have learned so far in my internship. Lesson number one. God's people are a blessing. And I want to thank all of you for helping Preston learn that lesson. 
that God's people are indeed a blessing. And lesson number two that he learned is that God's work is worth fighting for. The church of Jesus Christ is a valuable thing. And it is worth living out the truth of the word of God, no matter the consequence or price. And the church is worth fighting for. We live in a culture in which men are deciding to do other things than to go into vocational ministry. Now, you understand that I make the distinction between full-time ministry and vocational ministry because we are all full-time Christians. Every one of us is in full-time ministry, fulfilling the Great Commission, multiplying Christ-like disciples who are passionate, obedient, dependent, connected, authentic, and relevant so that we can multiply Christ-like disciples. That's our full-time job, no matter our vocation. Now, some of us have the opportunity of serving the Lord vocationally. And the reality is there are fewer and fewer men going into vocational ministry. I'm afraid that the question a lot of young people today are asking is, why should I? I would challenge those young people to ask this question, why not? It is a good thing to serve the Lord. And I have been privileged for 46 years to serve the Lord vocationally. And I am so grateful that God called me into the ministry. Paul reminds Timothy of that truth. Timothy, if anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, he desires a beautiful thing. It's a good work. It's a noble task. Timothy, if God calls your life to vocational ministry, remember, it is an opportunity to be given to so few others. It is, Timothy, a good thing. Now, as you look at the text, I need to remind you very quickly that Paul identifies the conduct of a, of a bishop or pastor, and that conduct is displayed in some non-negotiable terms. There are four times that Paul uses the word must. Look at them with me, will you please, very quickly. Verse 2, therefore an overseer must. Verse 4, he must. Verse 6, he must. Verse 7, moreover, he must. These are non-negotiables. And as we try to identify what is necessary in order for a pastor to be qualified according to God's word to serve, we look at these non-negotiable terms. I've divided these terms into three areas. There's that personal mandate. And next week we will look at the personal mandate. 
that is so necessary to identify the character of the man who vocationally serves the Lord as a pastor or bishop or elder. We also see his public ministry. He must be able to teach. Preston identified this last week when he said the distinction between pastors and deacons is that pastors are required to teach, and we'll talk about that in, in just a moment. And then the third area that Paul identifies here with two musts is that they must have a practice mission. A practice mission in their family and a practice mission in the community. Their family must be that which exhibits God's work in, in their lives. And in the community, they must be well thought of and a good example to those who are outside the church. And so the conduct of a bishop or a pastor is displayed in non-negotiable character qualities that are identified here in 1 Timothy chapter 3. But this week I, I want to focus in on the primary public responsibility of a, of a bishop, of a pastor. And that is God-directed communication. And it's at the end of verse 2 where it says, Abel to teach. The primary public responsibility of a vocational minister is that he must be able to teach and preach the word of God. Because shepherding the flock involves taking God's truth and working it out in practical ways so that the flock can go out as discipled believers and live it out through their lives. Live it out through their lives in a lost and dying world. It's a function. It's a responsibility. And Paul identifies it a number of times in 1, 2 Timothy and, and Titus. Now let me quickly give you some characteristics of this primary responsibility. First of all, this, this, primary, this responsibility is a gifted responsibility. It is spirit-led. It is one that the Holy Spirit of God takes and uses and, in, and implies in the lives of people. My prayer every Sunday is that the Spirit of God would take the Word of God and, and apply it to the heart of the, of the child of God so it can be lived out for the glory of God. That the Spirit of God would take the Word of God, apply it to the heart of the child of God to be lived out for the glory of God. And that must be Spirit-led. It's a gift of the Spirit to teach and preach the Word of God. It must also be grounded in sound doctrine. We have read 1 Timothy and studied 1 Timothy 1 and 
the challenge that Paul reminded Timothy of there was that there were certain individuals that were teaching a different doctrine. We'll get over to chapter 4, and in chapter 4 it says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith. A key to the primary responsibility of the pastor in his teaching and preaching is that it must be grounded in sound doctrine. Second Timothy reminds us all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction and in righteousness. Yes, we need to take the scriptures and apply it to our current culture. But the ancient words that we have in this book are foundational to our lives and living. Jesus said in his great high priestly prayer, sanctify them through thy word. Thy word is truth, doctrine. A third quality of God-directed communication is that there must be gracious humility. Keep your finger here in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Verses 24 and 25 where, where Paul says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patient, enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3, But sanctify the Lord God in your heart, and be ready always to give an answer to everyone that asks you a reason of that a hope that is in you with gentleness and humility. God-directed communication must also include a genuine holiness. One cannot properly and correctly and honestly preach and teach the word of God unless they have come before God as an obedient child and are doing their best to follow the holiness of God. Paul identified that in chapter 4 of 1 Timothy where in verse 7 he says, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths, but rather train yourself to godliness. No pastor is perfect. And may I encourage you, put no pastor on a pedestal. Because the higher the pedestal, the greater the fall. And you and I could identify a number of pastors prominent Christian leaders who have fallen because of sin. Why did that happen? Because there was not genuine holiness disciplined for godliness evidenced in their lives. Two more qualities of preaching God-directed communication 
the preacher must be a guided minister of the gospel. A student of the word. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, study, Timothy, study to show yourself approved unto God. Now, that doesn't mean that it's an academic exercise only, but what that means is you need to do everything you can to discipline yourself to be the kind of person God wants you to be. It must be a guided ministry. And it must be a gutsy ministry. Sometimes it takes courage to teach and preach the Word of God because the principles that this book gives to us are not culturally acceptable. And as we share together, each one of us is in a different place in our spiritual journey, and each one of us has come to the place where we are in our spiritual uh, journey in a different way. And we have a lot of baggage. And yet, it's the Word of God that needs to guide and direct us no matter what. And the bishop, the elder, the pastor is identified as one who is able to teach and preach the Word of God. Now, we identified this as God-directed communication. But I want to remind you that God-directed communication is not only with our lips, it's also with our lives. Because the truth is, as I stand before you, if you cannot see me practically living out the wonder of the Word of God amidst the pressures of life, and I am doing you a misservice because I am not exampling before you what it means to teach and preach with my life as well as my lips. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4, will you please? 1 Timothy chapter 4. Paul says to Timothy, verse 11, Command and teach these things, Timothy. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example, an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. But do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given to you by the by prophecy, when the council of elders laid their hands on you, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. May I ask you to help me? Keep me accountable. Now understand that that flows both directions. But if my life 
does not match my lips, then I am disqualified and not providing the God-directed communication that is necessary in our lives. That's a tall order. order. Deuteronomy, God challenges his people as he restates the law. And in chapter 6, he says, you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And you're to teach your kids to do that. How do you do that? You teach them when you sit. You teach them when you walk. You teach them when you lie down. You teach them when you rise up. You diligently teach them what it is to live out the wonder of God in their lives. Now that's for all of us. That's not just for the bishop. That's not just for the pastor. But the truth is, God has given to me a special responsibility to example and illustrate what it means to live out the truth of this book, even though life gets very complicated and complex and tough. I've had a number of folks say to me, Pastor, I don't know how you do what you do. Well, it's by God's grace. And it's through the Spirit working in my life. But I've had a number of guys that I've known on the outside, and and they, they say to me, what do you do? I mean, you only work one day a week. How hard is that? I've invited them to follow me around a little bit. No one's ever taken me up on that. But I must make sure that I am practicing what I preach. I want to thank you for allowing me to be your pastor. It is an honor and a privilege to serve here at Calvary Baptist Church in Battle Creek, Michigan. And I say that with a great deal of assurance and love and conviction. Thank you. And I would tell you, if you are at a point in your life where you believe that you could serve the Lord vocationally, there's nothing better than that. It's a beautiful thing. There are non-negotiables that must be seen in our lives. And the primary practice is communicating the Word of God. Paul identifies it as teaching. With our life and our lips. But you know, each one of us has that same responsibility, don't we? Jesus said, let your light shall shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify 
your Father which is in heaven. So here's my take-home truth. Here's my final challenge to you. During this difficult time in the history of our country, as people just seem to be going nuts, have you been to the stores recently? Live out the wonder of God's work in your life. Let your light shine. As I must let my light shine. So that they see in me the wonder of who our God is. And the confidence that we have in him to accomplish everything that he desires. For his honor and for his glory. God bless you. Have a great week. Be encouraged. And shine, shine as lights in a very dark world.